have we been treated to excellent treats so far this morning? Please say yes or no. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the fun has just begun because the treats will continue. Our next speaker is Dr. Richard Dolinar, who is also a friend of mine. He is a practicing endocrinologist who has developed quite a reputation as a public speaker on medical care. He has also written scholarly articles for the Heartland Institute Heritage Foundation. In my opinion, some of his best moments are when he debates the opposition. He has done this on NBC and NPR. He has the uncanny ability to flatten his opponents with an unexpected verbal left hook while maintaining his composure and avoiding any hint of stridency. He also struggles with the problem of integrity. He has spent many hours studying political philosophy and economics, which gives him the intellectual ammunition to explain how markets are both just and moral. But his forte is to take these abstract concepts and make them palatable to the average person. As you all know, that is not easy. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Richard Dolinar. Thank you, Bob, for that uh, fine introduction. Uh, I should tell you, Bob is, is just a terrific individual. Uh, he, on occasion, has been my physician. Uh, often he has been my mentor, and he's always been my friend. Many of the points that I'll be making today are points that Bob and I have discussed and worked on, and information, based on information Bob has shared uh, from many different sources. So I thank Bob for this opportunity to give a presentation to this very important group of physicians. My presentation today will be on pay for performance. It's one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite people, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> but I think you'd agree with it. Let's face it, if we were to start from scratch, none of us, from the died in the wool liberals to the rock-solid conservatives, would devise the type of health care system America has inherited. The current system is unsustainable. Absolutely. We'd all agree with that. Let me give you a little background. What kind of system have we inherited? A buys from B, C pays. Patient buys from the doctor, the hospital, the pharmacy, the insurance company, or the government pays. Where else do we have that kind of economic system, that economic model in our society? We have it in our home. I've got two boys. They're 12 and 14. They go buy from B, I pay. Now, what if we bought cars that way? What if Dr. Hantoon was going to buy a car and we had Dr. Gervais pay for it? Yeah, see. <laughs> Actually, those of you who live in Arizona, you might recall about five, six years ago, that is the exact system we had for buying cars. It was the Alternate Fuels Act. 
And what it did, if, we, if you went out and bought a new vehicle and you had it converted so it can run on propane or natural gas, then the state would pay for 40% of the vehicle. I see Lee nodding her head. The state paid for 40% of the vehicle. They were tearing the doors off the dealerships trying to get in there to buy these vehicles. They were buying the high-end SUVs loaded with everything. They shut down the act in four months because the state was going to go bankrupt. Yet, yet, that is the system we use in healthcare today. A buys from B, C pays. And of course, what does that set up? Internal conflict between A and C. A always wants more because C is paying. C always wants to pay less. They're not getting anything for this. And what happens when you have A buys from B and C pays? And C is an elected official. Well, let's just keep giving them. I, I need the votes. And what happens? We go into bankruptcy. It's the federal budget. We go, into, we go into bankruptcy at a federal level. Look at the entitlement programs. Social Security at about $540 billion. Medicare and Medicaid, $533 billion. So we're looking at 41% of our national budget is on entitlements. And the majority of those entitlements are consumed by the elderly population, the, those over 65. It's interesting. They make up a little less than 15% of the population, yet they make up 22% of the voters. That's why they're focused on by legislators, and that's why they go after their vote, and they provide so many benefits for them. But we're here to talk about pay for performance. This I just wanted to lay out as the background. Now, pay for performance, we've got Medicare looking at it to pay physicians that way, and we've got insurance companies looking at it to pay physicians that way. But these are two different programs, entitlements versus insurance. And I think it's important that we, we realize the difference. An entitlement is a government program providing benefits to members of a specified group. Insurance, on the other hand, is coverage by contract, whereby one party agrees to guarantee another against a specified loss. So in other words, with insurance, you've got a guarantee. With entitlements, there are no guarantees. So the health care program, Medicare program that we have in place right now, when you become eligible for it, there is no guarantee that anything will be there for you. It's set up as a pay-as-you-go system, as you know. This gimmick, pay-as-you-go, merely postpones the full impact of the cost and causes Medicare's real burden to be shifted to the future. That's a quote from 1965, Minority Report, when Medicare came out. So here we are in the future. Here we are faced with that financial crisis. How are we going to address it? Well, first of all, you need to understand the two economic systems we're working with. On the left, bottom up. On the, on the right, top down. Bottom up, free market, consumer choice. The consumer decides on those uh, entities he's going to purchase, those services he's going to purchase. As you know, on a top-down, it's a bureaucratic determination. A bureaucrat decides what care is going to be provided, which services are going to be provided. Bottom-up, we have true price. Top-down, allowable charges. You, as a physician, what can you charge when you see that patient? Bottom-up, voluntary exchange. You voluntarily go into Walmart, voluntarily go into other stores to make your purchases. Top-down, involuntary exchange. You're limited 
If I'm the only endocrinologist in the HMO and you need an endocrinologist, I'm the one you're going to see. Bottom up, competition. Top down, regulation. Bottom up, profit driven. Top down, budget constrained. There are only so many healthcare dollars. And sir, we can't provide care for you because our dollars are limited. Bottom up, positive sum game. Both the buyer and seller gain in that exchange. Top down, zero sum game. One wins, the other loses. Now, where does this take us? And bottom up, it's price wars. The various companies are fighting for your service, for your, for your dollar, so they can provide their product to you. But where does top down take you? To price controls. And that brings us to today's talk. Price controls pay for performance. I will argue in today's presentation that rather than quality, the issue behind pay for performance is control, an attempt to control the price of health care today. Quality versus control. All we hear about is the mantra of quality. I believe the real issue is control. The term is pay for performance, P for P. There's a number of assumptions that go with that. Number one, past clinical, past clinical care was not scientifically based. You know, people come up and they say, now we're using evidence-based medicine. Well, what did we use before? Many of you with gray hair or no hair, like myself, what did we use when we were in medical school? What did, how did we treat patients? Of course we used the scientific method. Of course we used uh, information that was available at the time, the best information that was available at the time. But under P for P, the assumption is it was not scientifically based, and we were treating by gosh and by golly. Another assumption of pay for performance, higher quality health care costs less. Now think, what other economic models does that fit? If you want to buy a higher quality car, are you going to pay less for it? You want to buy a higher quality suit, will it cost you less? You're going to buy a higher quality house, is that going to cost you less? Next, practice variations equal poor quality care. We've got across the United States a vast difference in C-sections, vaccinations, this surgery, that care, et cetera, et cetera. Ergo, it is thought that therefore, this must mean we've got poor quality care and we've got to standardize this. We've got to bring these, these everybody towards the, the mean. What they don't realize, but I think all of us realize as physicians looking at this situation, what is constant when we look across that, that spectrum? Each one of those physicians was using his best medical judgment when he treated that individual patient. And then we do the numbers, and sure, there's a big variation in what was done, how it was done, for whatever reason. But the common denominator is that physician using his best medical judgment for the treatment of that individual patient. What pay for performance will do is take that away from the physician, his best medical judgment, and replace it with an algorithm. Another assumption, value is objective. If value is objective, then a third party can make value judgments. Well, think about it. Is value truly objective? 
do we have a way to measure it? Do we measure it in inches or pounds or ounces? Of course not. And if it's not objective, how can a third party make that decision as to what is the proper choice in an exchange? So, for example, let's say, let's say, uh, Jeremy, uh, we've got a uh, yellow Corvette, and, and uh, Jeremy's thinking about buying a yellow Corvette, and it's uh, for $5,000 less than what they're selling for. And he comes up to me and says, Rich, what should I do? I'm a third party. What should I do? Well, I tell him, hey, it's $5,000 less. You, you had it. Yeah, I'd buy it, Jeremy. I'd buy it. Well, what if Jeremy now told me, well, I've got 12 yellow Corvettes, same model in my backyard. Do I need a 13th? I, I guess not. Likewise in healthcare, I'm an endocrinologist. So if you're in the ICU dying of diabetic ketoacidosis, you'd think the world of me. Get this guy in here or, or somebody like me to, to help me out. We'll pay anything. But if you're healthy and don't have diabetes and you're walking down the street, how much am I worth as an endocrinologist to you? Zero. Value is subjective, not objective. P4P also assumes the diagnosis is correct. It assumes the diagnosis is correct, however, the physician needs help in deciding how, how to treat that patient properly. In fact, we should tell them how to, what algorithm to set up to, to treat. Well, as a physician, each one of us knows what's the most difficult part about treating a patient? Getting the right diagnosis. Once you got the diagnosis, anybody can go look it up and figure out how best to treat it. But making the diagnosis is the most difficult part. So we trust the physicians to make the right diagnosis, but we don't trust them with how to treat that patient. Now, the term that's used is quality-based purchasing. And you can see what it, com what it consists of. Evidence-based medicine, which is the foundation. Best practices, which is the standards that are established. EMR, electronic medical records, the monitor. Outcomes measurement, works as the gauge. Pay for performance, the enforcer. I think we'd all agree these terms are very appealing. Who could possibly be against evidence-based medicine, best practices, outcomes measurements, and paying for performance? But what do they really mean? And that's the subject of today's presentation. Let's start with evidence-based medicine, which is the foundation of pay for performance. Definition of evidence. Think about this. In healthcare. We work with data. We don't work with evidence. What is evidence? Evidence is a camera at an intersection showing a car going through a red light and crashing into another car. That's evidence. Evidence is forensics looking at a bullet and determining what gun it came out of. But in healthcare, we work with data. And data is open to individual interpretation as we become more skilled and knowledgeable in the treatment of patients. Very little evidence in, in medicine. We might have a culture grows out, an organism, we say, oh, there's the evidence, we're treating that bug. But most of what we do is based on studies of large population groups. They took 5,000 patients, they treated with a, a certain statin drug, and this is what happened. That's the data. And sometimes interpretation of data changes. 
yet we use the term evidence. And when we use the term evidence in healthcare, I have been in many conversations where all of a sudden it comes to an end. It's like saying checkmate, ha, gotcha, no further discussion, no more creative thinking. It kills it. As healthcare has come more and more under the influence of law, the terms that are used in law are now coming into healthcare, evidence being one of them. I mean, years ago, those with gray hair or no hair, when we talked about uh, cases, we didn't say evidence. We said, what did the literature show? Doctor, what was your experience? What's the data show? Not, here's the evidence. We also use other legal terms, like client. And all these terms start changing how we approach healthcare. We take terms that are used in the profession of law, and they're now being applied in the profession of medicine. We now look to a higher authority, a judge, to determine what is the best way to treat XYZ uh, entity, rather than looking at the individual patient. External validity. You've got a study, 5,000 patients placed on, let's say, a statin drug, and you've got the data there. And it's internally valid. This study was done correctly. The, the patients chosen were, were chosen correctly. It's a good study. External validity, though, is the question of, does this study apply to this individual patient? Yes or no? And who makes that decision? In the past, the clinician made that decision and applied it to the patient. With pay for performance, a third party makes that decision and decides that this data applies to that patient, et cetera. Evidence-based. Passed out uh, some of the articles I've written, and be happy to please take them home with you and read them on the flight home. But to point out one thing, there is no evidence to support evidence-based medicine. There is no evidence to support a third party making those clinical decisions rather than the treating physician. There is no evidence showing that that third party can do a better job of making that decision. Think about it. These third parties making these decisions, they haven't done the history. They haven't done the physical. They haven't ordered the lab, reviewed the lab, reviewed the chart, talked with the family. In fact, many times, they don't even know the patient's name, yet they're making the decision. I had an episode just yesterday in the office where I was trying to use a drug on a patient, and I couldn't get authorization. Authorization got denied. So I asked to speak with the uh, endocrinologist because the medical director said, we, we talked to our endocrinologist, and he said, no. It's fine. Let me speak with your endocrinologist. Oh, we can't do that. Well, give me his name. Oh, we can't give you his name. So now we have an ongoing battle over whether I'm going to get access to this individual standing behind a black curtain, making a decision on my patient, who I am medically legally responsible for. I'm the one responsible for the patient. And in a pay-for-performance scenario, my paycheck, my bonus is going to be based on how well this patient does. And now you're tying my hands and saying, no, Rich, you can't use XYZ treatment. But yes, Rich, we are going to measure you, and, and uh, your bonus is going to be based on how well your patients do. I think Toilet Brace uh, summed it up well. Evidence-based medicine is managed care masquerading as science. It's the placing a top-down approach into what was previously a bottom-up free market approach in healthcare. Let's go on to best practices, the standard. 
So we take evidence-based medicine and we determine what are the best practices. Well, remember, what's good for the group might not be necessarily good for the individual. When you take a group of 1,000 patients, the majority would do better on a statin, let's say. But your individual patient has elevated LFTs, and you're not going to want to put a statin on that patient. So what's good for the group may not be good for that individual patient. Algorithms replace medical judgment. You know, historically, when we were trained, we were trained to think about the individual patient and the disease and try to come up with the best solution to treatment. Because remember, as Osler said, it's the patient who has the disease, not the disease who has the patient. And you're treating the patient. I am concerned that as I interact with residents and, and medical students, what I'm seeing is a change in how they approach problem solving. In the past, rather than sitting down and looking at the factors and trying to figure out how to put the various pieces together, the history, the physical, uh, the data, the patient's values, etc., now instead they go through algorithms. They memorize algorithms. Much like librarians, if I can figure out which category this book belongs in, then I know what shelf to put it on, rather than working with the individual patient. Best practices. You wind up institutionalizing mistakes. Uh, a few years ago, there was a statin drug that one of the managed care plans said all patients had to be started on if they were going to be placed on a statin drug. This was the drug they had to be at least started on. Well, subsequently, that drug was taken off the market because of um, deaths and, and other morbidities, uh, et cetera. But that whole group, cohort of patients in that health plan, they had exposure to that drug if they needed a statin drug. So you institutionalize mistakes. The problem of knowledge. Think about this. Clinicians practicing medicine apply decisions in reaction to ever-changing circumstances. Much like you're driving a car, of course we should stay on the right of the double yellow line. Of course we shouldn't drive on the left side of the road. But if you come around a curb and here's this big boulder right in your path and you're speeding along, of course you're going to go over that double yellow if nobody's coming. Of course you make that decision. Likewise, if you're a pilot, you should fly in a certain air corridor. But if you see you're going to uh, collide with someone or there's a major thunderstorm and you have to avert at the last minute, you do that. What pay for performance does, it keeps you on the right side of the road, right into that boulder. See, in reality, the best practice is to treat patients according to their individual needs. Let's go on to electronic medical records, EMR, which is the monitor. Cost-effective versus cost-prohibitive. In the discussions that occur, you would think that doctors never, ever touch a computer, use a computer, whatever. On the other hand, every doctor's office I've been in has a computer doing billing. I mean, there may be one out there I'm not aware of. They have a computer doing uh, uh, appointments. They're finding the most efficient and effective way to care for their patients. Medical records, on the other hand, keeping your uh, medical records on computer can be very expensive. There are a number of issues involved. I think we're probably still in the early phase, you know, like the Egyptians. When they move from cuneiform to papyrus, they're still trying to figure out how the heck to do it. And I think someday electronic medical records might be very helpful. But right now, today, I, I really question that. 
And as, as people have pointed out, the issue of privacy with electronic medical records. You know, as we know, the government does a lot of things well. One of the things it doesn't do well is keep secrets, as someone once pointed out. Just recently, I happened to be uh, retired uh, from the Air Force, and uh, my medical record, my, my records apparently were, uh, along with 23 million other uh, uh, military, uh, were uh, taken away, and, and uh, who knows what was robbed or what information was carried away, uh, my personal financial information, social security number, et cetera. Real issues there. Are they an accurate portrayal of patient care? I'm a specialist, I'm a consultant, I do primarily diabetes. You ought to see the records that patients come to my office with, or records that you know, we send for the records, see what was done previously. In the past, it might have been a little tough to read the doctor's handwriting, but you could sort of figure out what was going on, you had what you needed. Now when we ask for records, many times two inches of records hit the door. And it's all, they're on a computer, and every time the patient is seen, it's a form that's using the same physical that was done three, four, five months previous with the same history. The, the family, of course the family history hasn't changed. The father died, he's dead, nothing's going to change there. Uh, so this pound hits, and now you're trying to wade through it. I see the same thing in the hospital, going through nurses' notes. Uh, one of the hospitals I'm at, they've got computerized nursing notes. You try and get a feel for what's happening with that patient. It, it's darn near impossible. However, however, and I don't mean to be negative, on the positive side, I think it's probably very helpful in a court of law when, when the lawyers are going through attempting to sue you. They can point out precisely on computer page 7 uh, exactly uh, what happened with the uh, temperature or uh, blood culture, whatever. So who did the electronic medical records benefit? I think the third parties can reap a lot of benefits if we go on electronic medical records. This will allow them to monitor us very, very closely. Whereas previously they attempted to control the formularies we were using, and they still do that, this will allow them to control the actual uh, monitoring of our medical decisions. Now, outcomes measurements, the gauge. I want to point out to you that measurements could appear to be improving, but in reality things could be getting worse. I'll give you an example. Hemoglobin A1C. A normal hemoglobin A1C can be achieved in two ways. Uh, hemoglobin A1C, for those of you not very familiar with it, in a diabetic patient, this is a way that we can monitor blood sugar control, diabetic control. Uh, <clears throat> I tell the patients it's we're measuring how much sugar is on the red blood cell. And over the last two or three months, that red blood cell has been circulating in your system. And if you've had a lot of sugar in your system, you're going to have a thick coating like an M&M candy. That's really not the case. For those of you who are familiar with it, it's really an Amadori shift a chemical reaction, but you really can't get into that with your patient. But there's two ways to get a normal uh, hemoglobin A1C. One is if your sugars are in good control, you get a normal hemoglobin A1C. The other way is if for every high, you have a low, a corresponding low. So you're in the 400s here, but you're down in the 30s and 40s here, and you're bouncing up and down. You can have a normal A1C. Now, very brittle patients, your type 1 diabetic patient, you're not going to push into real tight control because you risk knocking them into hypoglycemic reaction. But what pay for performance does is put another layer of complexity on top of your medical decision-making. 
your medical judgments. Here I am in the office. Clinically, I think we should go to this level, but I'm realizing, I mean, once all this is put in place, I'm realizing they are measuring my A1Cs. I'm just going to push them a little harder. You know, I got my one boy just started high school. I got a few more dollars. I want to make sure I get the bonus. Well, what happens when you push a diabetic patient too low? You put them in risk of hypoglycemia. Five years ago here in Phoenix, we had a patient with type 1 diabetes, 36-year-old fellow, had a reaction while driving his car, and he drove it into the pole. On the way to the pole, there was a sidewalk. On the sidewalk were two mothers pushing their two newborns in strollers. All four died. All four died. The driver survived, but all four died. So when we're making our clinical decisions, even something as simple as, should I adjust the insulin up or down, or what should I do? Major potential implications. Now on top of that, what pay for performance will do, because they will measure the hemoglobin A1C, that is one of the measurements, what they will do is put another layer of complexity. Well, should I push it just a little harder? Well, we'll see what happens. And then the question of who are we measuring? Physicians versus patient outcomes. Are we measuring the physician or are we measuring the patient? Uh, for example, studies show that statin drugs, which are used to treat uh, dyslipidemia, high cholesterol, at six months, well, let me back up a second. At day one, when you write the script, 10% of the patients don't even get it filled. Another 10% get it filled but don't take it. At six months, at six months, 50% of patients who were put on lipid drugs are not taking them. Yet that is another one of the measurements that has been put forth to measure how good a physician is. How are the LDLs doing? How's the cholesterol doing? Maybe we should have patient pay for performance rather than physician pay for performance. <laughs> pay for performance, the enforcer. Now, don't get me wrong. I am all for... That individual comes to market with a better product, a better service. Absolutely, I think they should get paid more. They can demand more on the market. They should get it. If they can demand it and they, they can get it, great. But what does pay for performance really mean in the medical sense? It's pay for compliance. Did you follow this algorithm? Did you treat according to this algorithm. We have an example here in Phoenix. Last year we had a cardiologist. And the, the, uh, the situation, very briefly, patient was dying, really looked like they needed a uh, heart transplant. And this cardiologist did something other than what the algorithm called for. Saved the patient's life. The patient's alive today. That doc is no longer in that health plan and now there's a lawsuit that he's brought against the health plan. He treated the patient. He, he didn't treat the algorithm. Responsibility without power. If I could have a show of hands, how many of you docs go home with your patients? I mean, you know, when, when they're in the office, you can give them the best advice, write out the best medicines, give them the best treatment, but once they go out the door, what they do is up to them. What they do is up to them. And could you imagine anything more frustrating than the following? All of us have had frustrating patients to work with. But gosh, you know, you do your best. You're a human being and, and you know, you, you do your best. It can be frustrating, but you do your best. 
Now we add another layer on top of that doctor-patient relationship. This particular patient here is not following my advice. His A1C is out of whack. The diabetes is in poor control. That's going to be reflected in my numbers. That is going to be reflected in whether I get a bonus or not. So now if this patient was frustrating before, now think of your relationship with that patient and, and how it will be altered, knowing that your paycheck will be dependent on how well he or she does. Fruits and vegetables. This is my favorite part of pay for performance. You cherry pick and play hot potato. You're really good patients. I've got a patient here, college degree, highly motivated lady. She wants her diabetes in good control. We can do a lot. This fellow over here, <clears throat> a lot of medical complications. He's trying to do his best, but gosh, he's on prednisone. He's got fevers. There's no way we're going to be able to get con good control. Hot potato. So I tell him, Mr. Smith, Mr. I'm primary care now. Mr. Smith, I want the best care for you. I'm going to send you to an endocrinologist. <laughs> so Mr. Smith now comes to see me, endocrinologist. And I, I, you know, if the primary care could figure out that, hey, this is a hot potato, I think the endocrinologist can too. Uh, Mr. Smith, I want the best care for you. I'm sending you to the University Medical Center. <laughs> those patients requiring the most care, those patients that are the sickest, will find themselves on caravans, an endless search of a physician willing to treat them. Physician misclassification. So now as they measure and uh, determine what your rating is, well, what if you're Dr. Smith but there's another Dr. Smith over here who isn't very good, but there's been some type of administrative goof-up, and now you get the low rating. It impacts your paycheck, impacts your reputation out in the community. This, this is Dr. Smith. He's, he's got a D rating. Uh, one of the insurance companies, United Health, will put stars after your name. So you, Dr. Smith, you have no star after your name, so you're probably not a doctor I want to see. How do you correct that kind of problem? How long does it take? How much time will it take? How much money will it take? Will you ever be able to regain your reputation? You know, I saw right here, I got my report from my, my insurance company, and they know. I mean, they, they're watching you. They know. And you're, you're, you're not a good doctor. Could you ever recover from that? SGR, no new money. SGR, as you know, refers to the sustainable growth rate, uh, the way Medicare determines our uh, compensation. As you know, January 1st, uh, there'll be a 5.1% cut in uh, physician Medicare reimbursement. <laughs> the latest, I, I, I go back and forth to Washington, and the latest information I have is uh, uh, Congressman Thomas is now pushing for uh, pay for performance with Medicare, and he's willing to freeze us at the current rate that we're getting paid, which is last year's rate, which was really not a freeze uh, because uh, inflation continues. So we're, we're taking a loss. We just don't know how much until the year is over with. So what's on the table is you doctors accept pay for performance, and we will then not cut you 5.1%. We'll only cut you by putting a freeze on. That's what's on the table right now. But think about this. What, what, what pay for performance allows for is the congressman to say, you, doctor, you, we're going to offer you more money this year. We're going to give you a bonus. Well, 
we're not increasing the overall amount that we're paying doctors. So what does that mean? Most doctors will get paid less in order that some can get paid more. Musical chairs. Pay for performance. Analyzing patient data, measuring physician performance, and calling the process scientific is the mechanism being used today to shift power and control away from physicians. Performance measures. Just uh, one of them is the hemoglobin A1C, as I pointed out. There are others. Another one, for example, and I've used the hemoglobin A1C in debate, and I was told, well, Dr. Dallinar, that may be so you don't go home with the patient. But what about smoking? You know, one of the measures is, did you ask your patient, does he smoke, and did you attempt to uh, encourage him to stop smoking? Well, think about it. I got a patient here. He's got carcinoma of the lung. He knows he's dying. I know he's dying. One of the last things he has in life that he considers enjoyment is to have a smoke. Should I tell him not to smoke? Should I try to wean cigarettes away from him? When you look at the measures, I would ask you to look at them and say and, and see, are they measuring me, the physician? Are they measuring the patient? Are they realistic? I mean, when we go looking for a physician for ourselves or for our family, do we call and say, <clears throat> does your doctor ask if the patient smokes or not smokes? If so, how many times? Because I'm trying to decide whether to send my, my child to him or my wife or my spouse or go myself. When you look at those measures, which, which are currently being put together, you go on the AMA website, this is a paragraph that's there. I want to share it with you. Commercial uses of these measures require a license agreement between the user and AMA on behalf of the consortium. Neither the consortium nor its members shall be responsible for any use of these measures. The measures are provided as is without warranty of any kind. Yet these measures are currently being used by third parties to attempt to force us to treat patients in, in certain specific ways. Let me give you an example. This uh, issue I had yesterday involved the drug Bieta, exenatide. Uh, Lily makes that drug. This here is an algorithm for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And I think all of us would agree that's very reasonable. As you follow it through, uh, and I won't go through all the details, it makes a lot of sense. And I think in the year 2004, we'd all agree with this. But I should tell you, this came out last month. This is an ADA. These are ADA guidelines on the treatment of type 2 diabetes. They're about four weeks old right now. For those of you who do diabetes, what's missing here? Exenatide, Bieta. Not even mentioned here. What else is missing? And, and Bieta came out approximately about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. What else is missing? Inhaled uh, insulin, which came out last week. Bayet is not listed because it was determined to be too expensive. Well, if I'm treating somebody from Paradise Valley and I've got a millionaire sitting in front of me, is this the algorithm I should follow with them? Is, is this expense going to be an issue? It's a value judgment. Should that third party be able to make this value judgment? And what does this do? Let me tell you about Bayeta. When that drug came out, it was so effective because it decreased appetite. Most of your type 2 diabetic patients are obese. Decreased appetite, decreased weight. Decreased weight, decreased sugar. Decreased sugar, decreased triglycerides. This was a great drug. Docs, those of you out there, a lot of you started using it. 
this is the only drug I know of that when I went to a speaker's meeting, a speaker training meeting on the drug, the head of product development for the, for the United States, for Lilly, for this drug, gets up in front of 200 doctors and he says, Docs, I want to thank you for using the drug. Please, please don't write new prescriptions for new patients until the fall. We can't keep up. That's how hot this drug was and is. Not even listed here. See, once you set up an algorithm, you ossify, you calcify, you freeze in place. This was great in 2004. This is not the way to go in 2006. Yet, we will be forced to, to, to follow this, and indeed, that's what's happening with this patient that I now have uh, the conflict with the insurance company. Four questions. Brings us to one question. It's a P for P question. So who should get the bonus? The doc who treats the patient according to the algorithm or the doc who treats the patient according to the patient's individual needs? Who do you give the bonus to? And who decides? Well, right now, the third party is deciding. And with time, we've seen the third party taking a larger and larger role in the doctor-patient relationship, uh, over, overshadowing it making the medical decisions, but not taking the responsibility, as I pointed out with the, with the uh, measures that are being uh, promulgated right now, as is no responsibility. But you can see third parties saying to doctors, well, you know, the AMA and ACP and these other organizations, this is what they put out. You, doctor, you're wrong. This is the way you need to do it. So in essence, as I've said before and as you've heard at this meeting, healthcare is being transformed from an art to a science to a business to a crime. Where do we go from here? I'd recommend we restore patient sovereignty, empower the patient. Different ways you can do that. Level the playing field with the tax code. Allow for interstate purchase of health insurance. Our, our Congressman Shattuck from this state is pushing for that. You buy your pills from out of state, you can go to doctors out of state, go to medical centers out of state, but when it comes to health insurance, you can only buy it in state. We need to empower the patient. This, this would help do that, increase their sovereignty. So with that, I will end, and I, I will look forward to your questions at the Q&A. Thank you very much.